HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org, a nonprofit member-supported radio station. We're millions strong, with folks tuning in from over 200 countries. We are education. We are entertainment. We are the future of food. May is our membership drive. Become a member and support us while receiving e-newsletters, advanced invites, special discounts, and a membership card. We need your support. Visit our website and click the donate button to become a member today. Thank you for believing in us and enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome to What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with your host, Katie Kiefer. That would be me. We are broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's on the Heritage Radio Network. My guest in studio today is Dr. Orvashi Rangan. Uh, she is a PhD who leads and directs the Consumer Safety and Sustainability Group for Consumer Reports. She is responsible for managing risk analysis, policy assessments, label evaluations, and consumer advice for tests, reports, and related advocacy work. Dr. Rangan serves as a primary national spokesperson for consumer reports in the areas of sustainable production, consumption practices, Food safety and product safety issues related to chemical and contaminant hazards. She continues to decode the meaning of eco-labels for consumers and advocates. We'll have to do a show on that, Orvashi. <laughs> and credible labeling in the marketplace, including influencing government policy decisions at the state and federal level. Dr. Rangan received her Ph.D. in environmental health sciences from Johns Hopkins University in 1995 and conducted her postdoctoral work at the Environmental and Occupational Health Science Institute. She was a National Institutes of Health fellow from 1990 to 1997. Welcome to the studio, Ravashi. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks a lot, Katie. So you just published, and boy, uh, given that I was just at the Animal Agriculture Alliance down in D.C., a big uh, trade group um, summit meeting on activism, uh, you published uh, coincidentally at the same time a new report on ground turkey and antibiotic-resistant microbes that live therein. Um, can you describe the study for us, and can you tell us what some of the drugs were that you tested for? Sure. 
sure. Um, as you know, part of our ongoing look at ground meat and raw ground meat and looking at the safety of that industry as a whole, uh, we had never looked at ground turkey. So we decided to do a nationwide sampling of ground turkey. Uh, we purchased like 257 packages of ground turkey and sort of put them to the test. We tested for a number of different kinds of bacteria. And then of the bacteria we found, we subject those to uh, panels of antibiotics that are specific to those organisms in particular, mm-hmm. um, sometimes up to 12 different classes for any one given wow. organism. So it's several antibiotics, several classes of antibiotics um, in order to look at the patterns of resistance that are going on. And um, we found some pretty interesting results, actually. I mean, like all meat studies, we find some pathogens, we find levels of filth. Um, in this case, we found significant levels of filth, E. coli and enterococcus, which are measures of fecal contamination. Um, we're running at about 60%, 69%. Salmonella was around 5%. Staph aureus was around 15%. But the, the real findings, I think, had to do with our antibiotic resistance uh, profiles that we found. I mean, if you cook this meat thoroughly, those pathogens should not be harmful to you. But handling the meat carefully, making sure you don't cross-contaminate, those are all part of the deal right. in terms of safe consumption when it's that dirty. Um, but most of them were resistant, or just over half were resistant to three or more antibiotics. That kind of makes them in the superbug. Which ones were, which antibiotics were those? Do you remember? These are all human classes of antibiotics. So the antibiotic resistance panels that we use include all the human antibiotics that uh, we use to treat human diseases. Uh, we're not looking for the specific drugs that are used in turkey production, but we did make some interesting observations in the drugs. So let's just talk about the findings. We sure. found more than half were resistant to three or more antibiotics. Um, we also had a sample pool that was significant enough to analyze on its own which was meat that was labeled as no antibiotics or organic. So it was produced without antibiotics. And in those packages, we found statistically less antibiotic resistance in the, those bacteria than we found in the conventional ground meat. Very significant finding. But did you see the same amount of contamination vis-a-vis enterococcus? Yes, and, we and, did, actually. Uh-huh. We found the same kind of prevalence rates. And that is interesting. And I think that gets to other issues on Absolutely. the farm, right? Hygiene yeah. management, manure management. And we could probably be doing better on those things, even in organic and other production practices. But when you remove the antibiotic use and you note that there is statistically less resistance in that bacteria, well, it's a sort of case in point kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And we've been pushing that for years, which is we don't need to use all these antibiotics on the farm. Now, when we also looked at the drugs that are approved for use in turkey production and compared those to drugs that were not approved for use in turkey production, you saw much higher resistance in the bacteria um, to the classes of drugs used in turkey production that were analogous to human drugs. So it all starts to point to when we use them and approve them and use them in a sort of regular way, we're driving up resistance that we're seeing. And so the panels we looked at, again, are not the turkey antibiotics, but rather the resistance that's conferred to the human antibiotic version. In some cases, they're the same, but in some cases, they're a little different. And it's a lesson learned, really, because when you're developing resistance in antibiotics, 
resistance to one can confer resistance to another antibiotic in that class, and resistance in one organism can be transferred to that same kind of resistance in another organism. And that's the game we're playing out there once we introduce resistance into the environment. Absolutely incredible. Well, the National Turkey Federation said this in response to your study. This came out the very next day. As soon as you published yours, boy, they had something to say. They said the article is misleading about the significance of its antibiotic findings. One of the antibiotics for which... uh, the Consumers Union tested ciprofloxacin uh, has not been used in poultry production for almost eight years, meaning resistance is highly unlikely to be from farm animal use. And two other drug classes, penicillin and cephalosporin, which was only just recently banned from uh, livestock agriculture, right. are used infrequently in animal ag. The fourth drug a class tested by Consumer Reports, tetracycline, is used in animal agriculture but is a largely insignificant antibiotic in human medicine comprising only 4% of all antibiotics prescribed by physicians. So how do you, do you respond to that? Well, I think in short how I respond is there what there is what the Turkey Federation is saying and there is what the science is saying. Right. So in the data, we know that there is a lot of resistance in these bugs. And just because you stop use of certain antibiotics, we expect that resistance to carry over for a little while. In some cases, and you're always looking at the drug-bug combos. It matters. So some of them stay entrenched in resistance. Some will let go of that resistance over time. Uh, The lesson is not to myopically look at any one of those relationships and say that's the one that we should follow but really um in using these things over and over again and it's really the way in which we it's like a recipe for antibiotic resistance if i could think of a really good way to do it i might take a big lagoon full of manure i might add a little bit of antibiotics every single day kind of let it percolate away not enough to kill the bacteria but enough to ping them and just tease them every day, which causes them to mutate, to get resistant. And then they like to share that with anyone else who comes into the pool. That would be a great recipe. That is what is going on in conventional industrialized farming. That's right. That's what they call the sub... Uh, Dr. Raymond hates it when you say the word sub-therapeutic <laughs> dose. I forget what he... Te- he kept telling me over and over again what was the actual term he wanted to use. They have lots of low, terms. Low dose antibiotics, which is supposed to keep the animals healthy as well as, as we all know, promote growth. Now, they're dropping that concept of it's promoting growth, and it's just all about keeping them healthy in the conditions in which they live. That's right, and yet would we ever keep people healthy with antibiotics? Would we keep healthy people healthy using antibiotics? We <laughs> yeah, we all live pretty close that, together. <laughs> right? We would never, ever do that. In fact, even the FDA, if you go on and you start reading, they give you a people a lot of advice. Don't take those antibiotics unless you really, really need them. And you need to be sick with something that is going to be treatable with that antibiotic. Otherwise, you are causing other inadvertent problems. And yet, when it comes to animal production, it's usually no prescription. And this there's a slippery slope. You know, every Everyone is now saying, fine, we won't use it for growth promotion anymore. But the use of low levels to prevent disease, they call it prophylaxis, they call it disease prevention. These are just other terms for the same practice that is causing the same problems and and we don't have to do it. Right. And those drugs are delivered, by the way, in food and water. They're not, it's not like you're inoculating the animals. It's, It's part of a bigger chain, actually, that goes right back to the pharmaceutical industry and the feeds, uh, the, you know, the companies that provide feed, they all seem to be part of this whole problem. And, and which is one 
reason why I could see that there is a huge uh, pushback to change this model because, first of all, the Danish study, which they all point to as something that failed because they say, and in case people don't know about that, the Danish signed um, a law into effect about, I guess, about 10 years ago, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And a lot of EU countries have banned the use of antibiotics in that low-level or prophylaxic um For growth promotion. Right. Right. And so in the Danish study, what they like to point to is uh, a lot more animals got sick. Uh, They had a lot more animal mortality. Uh, But at the same time, antibiotic resistance did seem to go down, even though they were using overall larger levels of antibiotics to deal with the disease, specific diseases. So can you address a little bit about how... Um, well, actually, if there are any real studies that point to specifically that low dose usage um, creating the antibiotic resistance uh, microbes versus using it as a high dose that really wipes them out. Yeah, I mean, uh, there are lots of studies in the scientific literature and just a quick sort of zip through PubMed and looking at low-level antibiotic use on on farms. IATP had done some studies. I think Tara Smith out of um, Iowa State has also done some studies. And um, whether you're looking at transference of um resistant diseases from animals to people, animals on the farm to people nearby, sometimes the workers, you know, workers sure, are in the a hog industry MRSA them. is becoming a real problem. Absolutely. And so there there there've most definitely been scientific studies looking at these things. I think where the industry um dismisses those out of pocket is the sort of sample size and how do you know but here's what we do know we have an intra-agency government program called NARMS which is the National Antimicrobial Resistance Monitoring System and the great thing about that is that you have the USDA and the FDA and the CDC sort of looking at the plant the retail market for meat as well as the human clinical isolates that are happening um, for disease causing infections and it's a great program. And when we briefed the FDA last week on our Ground Turkey um, project, I mean, the good thing is the FDA has actually coming out with stronger and stronger language about their concern. We're just, we need that to be followed up with enforceable regulations. Um, but at least acknowledging the problem is the first step. But I think what we also learned is that NARMS um, get captures what's on the package so if it's saying no antibiotics or organic it's probably there but we're not looking at that data so mm-hmm. we've actually FOIA'd or issued a freedom of information request to get that data out of them we think we have more data that we're sitting on that shows that when we don't use this stuff we're getting less resistance and if that's the kind of data we need to get the right policy changes in place then let's get that out on the table um, especially where our taxpayer dollars have actually funded that work oh most definitely um Let's back to, oh, you know what? Actually, we should probably take a little sponsor drop here, right, Joe? Um, and also, let me take this moment to say this program and other programs like this on the air need your dollars to support us. Um, this station is the only one that produces programming like this. You won't hear this on any other mainstream broadband station. So please do look into our webpage and pledge your support to the Heritage Radio Network. And for now, we'll take a quick sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Dr. Urvashi Rangan from Consumer Reports. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery. In our industrial world, most wines have become brands, but the wines I love are so much more. Fine wine is a civilizing substance that connects us to nature. It cannot be stamped out in a factory. If you're listening to this great show, you probably eat different. 
I urge you to drink different too. Go deeper. King5.com You're listening to Weaving by Dead Stars on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Welcome back to What Doesn't Kill You with your host, Katie Kiefer. My guest in the studio today is Dr. Urvashi Rankin from Consumers Union, Consumer Reports. Um, so let's, let's just backtrack for just a second and talk about how and why drug resistance actually develops, because it's quite a complex um, sort of evolution. And, and it's, it's, it even for me, it's kind of it hard is. to wrap my mind around yeah, it. Yeah, it is. And it's really hard because it's not really about the meat itself right. per se. Although that doesn't mean that can't contribute. You have drug resistant organisms on the meat. You don't cook that meat well enough. That one mm. organism doesn't get killed. Your gut can actually, uh, perpetrate resistance with that. FDA actually just came out talking about that as well recently this past week. So that's interesting to note. But the primary mechanism that antibiotic resistance occurs has to do with environmental contamination and pollution from the farms. And so you create these sort of pools of antibiotic resistance on the farms and you're contaminating the environment, creating these environmental reservoirs. And like I said, Earlier, the bacteria, once they have the resistant gene, can then throw that gene to other bacteria, and those bacteria can then acquire that gene and that resistance. The gene can also sort of augment and and cover other antibiotics that maybe it wasn't initially acquired in the resistance, but now it's broadening um, because of the, the spectrum that it's on. And so that, again, you can spread resistance both ways across bacteria and across antibiotics within classes. And sometimes you can hop classes. And um, as we were talking earlier, sometimes drugs that are just approved in animals but not used in humans can confer resistance to the human counterpart. So this is what's going on. And the environment, of course, yes, is full of bacteria. And the industry often uses that as a way to say, so you don't need to worry. Um, And And yet you do need to worry about those that, for instance, you mentioned manure and how you would conduct an experiment with that. Most uh, most animal agriculture uses their manure um, as a fertilizer. It's it's it gets spread across fields, and that and therefore uh, antibiotic resistant microbes are in the soil. Sometimes in the water table, they're being picked up by plants, and they're being picked up by birds and wildlife. Is and that that is, is that true. accurate? That's accurate to a point. I mean, composting and the process of that is supposed to really address pathogens and mm-hmm. killing them. You're supposed to get your compost hot in the middle and. And the part of that is using the, the good bacteria. It generates heat in the compost, and you're trying to kill off that other kind of bacteria. So when we don't have proper composting, then yes, that's a great cocktail to kind of spread that uh, pathogenic bacteria around. And incidentally, uh, the Food Safety Modernization Act actually gives us an opportunity to deal with pathogens in manure compost, and it's something we do need to deal with. Um, any compost can have this problem, though. Of course. Um, so it's important to deal with that. But once it gets in the environment and we become infected, usually later on, not about the piece of meat itself, but later on, you know, just like we catch a cold anywhere we are in the environment, you don't have to be somewhere at a certain time uh, to get that bug. And so once those infections take place, 
the more resistant those bacteria are, the harder it is to treat uh, those folks who get infected by them. And things like E. coli and Enterococcus that the industry waves off as sort of everywhere and why be bothered, um, you know, they cause other skin infections, blood infections, so they may not be making you throw up from bad handling of the meat, but they certainly have other disease consequences and they are infectious organisms. And so to the degree we can mitigate the spread of resistance and even just the prevalence of those um, we should be focused on that we should be looking at that and yet the industry doesn't even begin to look at those things well I know that you mentioned something about disclosure and and I want to go back to that because uh, we mentioned it in the first half of the show but do you do you feel that the FDA or the pharmaceutical industry is disclosing all that they know or do is it going to require more Freedom of Information Act requests such as the one you described uh, in order to evaluate the impact of, of antibiotics in yeah, food production. Yeah, the regulation of antibiotics is is um, in bad need of an overhaul. And so there's a couple of pieces of legislation. There's the um, PAMTA Act, which is looking for prudent use of, of right. antibiotics, and the DATA Act, which is requiring more disclosure. I mean, what's unbelievable, especially for those of us who work on this issue, is that while we may know total sales of antibiotics, and we know 80% of total sales go to the animal agriculture industry every year, most of the drugs go there, we have no idea specifically what species they're going to specifically what use they're going to. And so the industry sort of hides behind this curtain of a failure to disclose and lobs grenades out from there, suggesting that no one knows what they're talking about when it comes to how they're using them. Well, I guess the the suggestion back to them is, well, then let us know so that we can know what you are actually using all of these drugs for. They're not required to report it out. Right. It isn't publicly available. But from a scientific perspective, it's incredibly important. Are, are you using them at low levels all the time? Because that's that pulsing effect that generates the resistance. And, you know, just to go back to the Dutch study, I'll say antibiotics are the tip of the iceberg when it comes to moving our conventional ag systems towards sustainability. We have a lot more to do in terms of animal welfare, how much space they have, making sure they're not standing in each other's feces, making sure we're managing manure. All those things have to come after. You can't just flip the switch. We get that. Right. Um, and leave them in their poop. You can't just do that. It requires a lot more to get a handle on this problem. And so we're not stopping at antibiotics. We need systemic changes in conventional uh, industrial food animal production to really get those long-term changes that we're going to need. Well, um, as I mentioned before, I did that Animal Agricultural Alliance um, conference this week, which was titled Activists at the Gate. Um, you know, they... <laughs> I'm at, sure they were horrified. <laughs> um, yeah, well, they feel very much, you know, that they are being stormed and being abused in the media and so forth and so on. And, and my message to them was basically, you know, come out from behind the curtain. And one of the things that I said that I think, I mean, the whole antibiotic part of my program was so... I got so much pushback afterwards, even though I was very much complimented on a lot of the other messages. But one of the things that I said, and I'd really believe this, Urvashi, if they believe that these that this antibiotic use is not uh, deleterious to the uh, human medicine arsenal, then it behooves them, since they've been making so much money off of this for all these many years, it behooves them to fund those studies, to make those, to hire a third-party independent entity to create a study that shows that they are not culpable. And you can imagine that did not... Uh... <laughs> no, 
I'm sure that did not go over no, well. No, no, not terribly well. You no, know, I think too, it's so divisive, isn't it? Because I think a lot of these companies themselves have no antibiotic lines. They know from a marketing perspective uh, that, that people want it, so they're going to do it. You know, I always give this example if everybody wanted blue M&Ms, then there would be just blue M&Ms out there. So now yeah. we're talking about a potential serious safety issue. Um, more of a long-term safety issue, and yet companies get indignant about having to change a practice because of that. But they change practices for far less than that. Sure so, they do. And then you have these companies with double lines, and they have no antibiotics because they know people will actually pay a little bit more. Maybe yep. they could call them natural, which has no meaning whatsoever, by the way, and doesn't get you to know antibiotics. But all to say that um, they have those lines, and then there are some serious producers out there that are following this. It is possible. And um, Nyman Ranch, Organic, these are folks that are sure. not using antibiotics. And it is. Um, and still have an industrial scale of production. In some cases, yeah. And then maybe there's some other things to look at, right? Because it's interesting those prevalence rates are the same. I think the cleaner systems you will get to in the end, and maybe with better welfare, you may start seeing some shifts in the prevalence rates too. Um, and as a scientist, I'm, I'm really interested in that. Consumer Reports is really interested in documenting those things because it gives a scientific backbone to what we already yeah. think are sensible and sustainable production practices. Right. Well, to give you some measure of hope, as well as uh, to my listeners, um, one of the things that I did hear a lot at this Agriculture Alliance uh, event was, first of all, the, the need for transparency was echoed over and over again. Um, improving animal welfare standards, again, something that they all are taking very seriously now. They see how damaging these activist videos have been, and they are really working hard, I think, in many cases, especially with the larger firms. Cargill already has a lot of webcams in place. Uh, they're monitoring their workers. It's not a third-party audited stream yet, but um, I wasn't the only person who advocated for that. I know Temple Grandin believes very strongly in that, and a lot of the guys, and I was the only industry outsider at this event, yeah. so a lot of the insiders were saying, the same thing. So that was encouraging to me. Um, and a lot of them have environmental uh, waste management programs, which are very proactive. And I think that they could do a lot more to bring that to the public attention, because that's, I think, a great concern to most people as well. And, and they are working on that part of it. But boy, the antibiotic thing, whoo, intransigent on that. Well, Absolutely. it really is. And I think, you know, when you look at groups that even go beyond what organics doing and some of the other ones on um, the American Grass Fed Association or Animal Welfare Approved, where you're really mm -hmm. now trying to get into those more systemic issues of animal welfare, hygiene management. Um, and look, some of those programs like Animal Welfare Approved allow for antibiotic use sure. for sick animals. And I hope that. I hope that's why we're doing all of this, because we want to make sure that sick animals can be treated for a long time and sick people can, too. Yeah. And I think that's really the goal here. It isn't to take the bottom out of the meat industry or anything else. It's right. to make it better for us and for our kids and for their kids. And, and for them. I mean, they, you know, I, I tried to tell them that if you don't listen to these concerns, you will go the way of, of uh, the American car industry, like the Pinto or something like that, where, you know, it's like they didn't want to put that rubber bladder in for three bucks a copy <laughs> and all the cars blew up. I mean, it's like you got to freaking pay attention to this stuff. Well, and it's so funny too because I'm not sure what the growth promotion rate really is. What's the return rate on all it's of this? It's pretty good, I think, unfortunately. Well, I mean, it's it not as much them. as they thought it was. I think it's more of a mask for just decent hygiene and, and it's a, a Band-Aid for bad sanitation in some cases. Right. And, you know, we know from other systems we don't have to do it. That's right, absolutely. So let's go back to the effort 
parts of uh, of uh, Representative Congresswoman Slaughter, uh, Henry Waxman, Rosa DeLauro. They they've all been uh, beating the tom toms. Especially uh, Dr. Slaughter has been out in front of this for seven eight years yeah. now. Um, she's brought her motion to the to the Congress at least six times, maybe more, and uh, it never somehow gets any uh, traction in Congress. Do you feel like that there is a growing interest on the part of lawmakers to start addressing this in a more serious way? You know, I think there's a bigger interest on the part of consumers to want that to happen. And I think that eight years ago when Congresswoman Slaughter introduced those things, I don't think it was really in the public consciousness. And I think that's what's moving and that's what moves Washington, and that's what moves the market, and that's what moves the companies. And I think that is happening, and people are making those demands. You know, we do a lot of national surveys and polls, sure. and we know people want that meat. They'll pay more for it. Yep. And um, frankly, people care about how their meat's produced, their food's produced, where it was produced, and they have a right to know that information. And it should be done clearly, anonymous leading way. Natural really shouldn't be allowed on the market, right. given it doesn't mean anything. And so I think there is a heightened consciousness. And, you know, for those of us who have been working in food advocacy for a long time, you know that something has to hit the floor of the of the Congress um, at least at least half a dozen times before it's really going to take root. And that's maybe where the optimism ought to be. I think people should be getting engaged in this issue and Me weighing too. in with their congressmen and congresswomen to let them know that they care. And it's time for these kinds of pieces of legislation to go through. Now, say one of these pieces of legislation is enacted. Uh, how are they going to enforce standards? Well, this would be the kind of thing then that gets promulgated to one of the agencies. So this is going to be the Food and Drug Administration. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Center for Veterinary Medicine is the one that does the the drug animal approvals. And they've been trying to give sort of voluntary guidance to the industry. I, I think they should be hearing the message loud and clear over at FDA. And if they wanted to step that up at this point, I think that would be more than welcome by consumers and even a number of industry players at this point. But that's where it's going to have to happen. And then we're going to have to make sure that the regs uh, get done properly. Absolutely. Um, And finally, besides you guys, who else is doing research on this topic besides, you know, either for or against? Like who are the, who can we point to as as other uh, university studies or entities that are doing some of the same kinds of sampling and and testing that you're doing? Well, there's a lot of folks out there working on it. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're definitely not the only ones. We've got a big megaphone, and and so, you know, let's share the stage. But there's plenty of universities. Tara Smith is out there doing stuff, IATP and David Walinga, um, Johns Hopkins, Keith Nachman's group, um, Center for Livable Future, uh, Bob Lawrence. There's a lot of people out there doing a lot of good works down in North Carolina near the CAFOs, a lot of good people down there, Steve Wynn. So So there are a lot of folks. I think um, the trick here is whenever you read studies in the literature, it's important to know who funded those studies. Um, Don't rely on headlines alone. We're misled so many times based on a headline on a press release that goes out. My job at Consumer Reports is to make sure we never go flying by the seat of our pants on that. We have to tackle those headlines down and look at the studies themselves, find out what their findings are, how they did it. Um, and knowing who did it is important. It doesn't mean that it's wrong, but 
but knowing that bias that might color a certain interpretation to create a headline that maybe isn't reflective of the study itself is all important to do. Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up here, Urvashi, but um, I wanted you to let people know where they can learn more about this on your website. Yeah, we have a couple of food websites, notinmyfood.org, uh, greenerchoices.org, and we have a label site on there. We have an eco-labels app that you can download to your iPhone to learn what labels mean something, what labels don't. Um, and we'll be ramping up more as our Food Safety and Sustainability Center starts to grow and grow at Consumer Reports. That's fantastic. Thank you very much for joining me today, and uh, thank you to my sponsor. And remember, folks, go to our website, pledge your support to Heritage Radio Network so that you can continue to hear from people like Dr. Rangan about this most important public health crisis that is looming over us. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.